I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which can be found on page 959 in the Bible in front of you. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is one of the best known passages in the Bible. If you've ever been to a human wedding, there is a decent chance that you heard at least the middle section of this chapter read during the service, and I think there's a good reason for that. It really is a beautiful hymn to love. It's easy to understand. It stands well on its own. And I do think that while it's not a very complicated passage in distinction from chapter 14 that we're going to see next week, which is an extremely complicated passage, I think most people probably understand what Paul's saying here, but my guess is we don't actually apply it properly. Uh, Because Paul really isn't talking about the love that a man has for a woman or that a woman has for a man in marriage. That's not completely unrelated, but that's not primarily what Paul has in mind. Uh, Instead, here in chapter 13, as Paul talks about love, he's talking about the love that ought to characterize brothers and sisters in the church. So he's not so much talking about the way that you feel about your husband as he is talking about the way that you treat the person who's sitting next to you this morning. That's really the only way we can make sense of this chapter's location in the book of 1 Corinthians. As we saw back in chapter 12, there seems to have been a lot of tension sort of manifesting itself in this ancient church. Uh, Some people were, were showing out spectacular gifts of the Holy Spirit, things like speaking in tongues and prophesying and even healing people. 
Uh, Paul refers to those things here in this chapter. And again, just like last time, I'm going to go ahead and punt on exactly what he's talking about until we get to chapter 14. We'll get more information, Lord willing, in chapter 14 that's going to help us understand what he means by those gifts. But, but they were extraordinary. They were unusual. Uh, other people in the church were not so gifted. Uh, they had received gifts from the Holy Spirit, as we thought about back in chapter 12, but, but they were things that seemed more ordinary, less, less impressive. Things like helping and mercy and administration. And so it seems that there was, there was tension growing in the church. There was suspicion and pride and envy creeping in, where the group with the more spectacular gifts thought that they were better than the others. And the ones without the spectacular gifts were suggesting that the first group was a bit out of control. So in chapter 14, we'll see Paul's going to give the church a way to think about the role of those gifts in the life of the congregation. But chapter 13, or chapter 13 kind of serves as a bridge between the, the image of a body uh, that we had in chapter 12 and the, the, the use of the gifts of the Spirit in chapter 14. In chapter 13, Paul wants to make sure that the congregation knows that the most important thing is not how they're gifted particularly, uh, but that they love one another. So the theme of this passage is obviously love. Uh, it breaks down into three pretty distinct sections, so what I'd like to do is just consider them in order. And so I'm going to give you my outline this morning using uh, the titles of classic pop songs. So here we go. It was actually, this was actually the hardest part of the sermon, was, was choosing the right song. So first, let's see in the immortal words of the Beatles that all you need is love. So we'll see that from the beginning of chapter, or the end of chapter 12 into the first three verses of chapter 13. Uh, second, in the perhaps even more immortal words of the, the rock band Foreigner, let's say together, I want to know what love is. We'll see that in verses 4 to 7. And then finally, I'm so disappointed that Joshua Lauder had to work this morning because along with Whitney Houston, I want to say, I, yeah, yeah, I will always love you, right? <laughs> and you see that in verses 8 to 13, and you can ask Joshua about his love for Whitney Houston uh, when you see him next time. Okay, so first, with that silliness out of the way, uh, all you need is love, right? Not technically true, but it captures the spirit of what Paul's saying here. Look there at the very end of chapter 12 into the first three verses of chapter 13. Paul writes this. He says, earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have... And if I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So Paul addresses the divisions in the church, and he tells them that he's going to show them a still better way to live together, a better way for them to be. And that way, Paul says, is love. Paul says that no matter what he might do, right there in verses 1 to 3, he, he makes it very personal. He doesn't say, if you speak in tongues, right? He says, if I speak in tongues. No matter how holy Paul is, no matter how gifted he might be, Paul says if he doesn't possess love, he's a waste. If he speaks in the tongues of angels, and maybe that's what the Corinthians thought the gifts of tongues were. But, but he says, even if I did that, if I don't have love, Paul says, I'm a noisy gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. 
apart from love, speaking in tongues is simply a grating noise. It's a, it's a horrible cacophony. It's, it's the teacher in the Charlie Brown cartoons, right? Wah, 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 wah. Right? It's meaningless, pointless. If he has all the knowledge, if he has the gifts of a prophet, if he has the kind of faith that Jesus talked about, the faith that could move a mountain, but somehow he doesn't have love, Paul says he's nothing. Here Paul says if he gives away everything, if he even dies for the sake of his Christian convictions, but if he does that without love, Paul says it's worthless, meaningless, nothing. And friends, I think it's easy for us to miss the shock of what Paul's saying here. I think 2,000 years of Christianity have helpfully left their mark on our world. And so a hymn of praise to love doesn't really meet with many objections nowadays. But love in the ancient world was not given pride of place amongst virtues. If you read the classic philosophers, they generally preferred reason and self-control. They, they exalted self-mastery over love. But here Paul says that love's the most important thing. That without love, actually every other virtue, every other good deed you might perform is meaningless. Now, it's hard not to conclude that Paul's exaggerating a bit here. I mean, does he actually mean what he's saying? I mean, just think about it for a second. Let's say, Lord willing, at our members meeting next week, right, we gather together, and as is our custom, the elders present to the congregation people who have applied for membership, right? They've written up their testimonies. The elders have sort of given a brief summary, and, and we consider this person and whether they ought to be a member of the church, right? And so if we come to you and we say, hey, we have, a, we have a person who would like to join our congregation, and this person is so wise that, in fact, they can be said to have all knowledge, right? They are so gifted that they legitimately prophesy as part of their following Christ. Oh, they can actually move mountains with their faith, and they've given away all that they own, and they're 100% ready to suffer, even to die for the cause of Christ. Uh, my guess is that person would pass unanimously. We would all hold them in the utmost respect. We would want to be around them. We would want to learn from that person. We'd, we'd say, hey, teach me to, to be like you, right? Would we stop and put up our hand and say, yeah, but wait, are they a loving person? I don't, they can't be a member of the church unless they have love. All that stuff you're talking about is useless if they don't have love. Remember, these things that Paul describes here in this early part of the passage, these things actually were true of him. He did speak in tongues. He did have prophetic gifts. He didn't have all knowledge, but great mysteries had been revealed to him by God, right? So great, in fact, that God had to give him a thorn in his flesh to keep him humble. Paul had great faith. He lived in tremendous poverty for the sake of the church. He ultimately did lose his life for the sake of the gospel, Right, Paul is the person that he's talking about here. He says, if I do all these things, he actually did. He's making it clear that all of that, all of those things he did, his entire resume would be worthless if he doesn't have love. And what Paul is saying here is very radical. He's not saying that in the absence of love, his gifts would be useless. Right, that's what you expect him to say. Right, without love, my tongues would be like a clanging cymbal. But he says, without love, I'm useless. He says, I'm nothing. 
right? Paul is, is ratcheting up the stakes on us, right? Even if you're the most wonderful, most seemingly gifted Christian in the world, without love, you are useless. You can see Paul's words here are worthy of our most careful consideration. Right? We don't want to waste our lives, right? We, we don't want to live and have the end result of our, of our living be just a bunch of useless noise, we don't want to get to the end of our days and have our sad legacy be enough, nothing but a bunch of sacrifice and giving and teaching and serving that's rendered worthless because it wasn't done in love. Brothers and sisters, it's really important that we do more than merely pay lip service to this idea. We are, I think, in a time of upheaval, particularly in the American church where there are a lot of opinions about what things are essential, what things must be present in the church. And here, Paul says that all of those good things that we might want to work out and hash out, he says that they're all meaningless without love. They're all rendered moot if they're not done in love. Of course, Paul didn't think this up on his own. The Lord Jesus had told his disciples that, that their love for one another would be the distinguishing characteristic of his people. In John chapter 13, Jesus says this in verses 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the question for us, the question for you this morning is, what does righteousness look like to you? What do you point at or to in your life to show that you are a godly person? What is it about you that you expect other people to appreciate and respect? Paul couldn't be more clear. If your life is not marked by a true love for your brothers and sisters, if our life together as a church is not characterized by love, then all of our efforts are for nothing. And so ask yourself, are you a loving person? Is your life characterized by love? Do you even really want to be loving? Right? If I gave you the choice, you could be rich, academically accomplished, witty, successful, respected, good-looking, or loving, can you say that you'd honestly press the button to choose love? And for us as a congregation, what, what matters most to us? What kind of leaders do we recognize? What kind of service to one another do we most celebrate? Right? You realize that we can have perfect doctrine. We can have great preaching. We could have the best music. We could, we could build top-notch facilities. We could have the very best youth group. We could give away food and clothes and diapers every Saturday. We could have every ministry under the sun. But Paul says if our church isn't characterized by love, it's all, it's all a waste. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of effort. And so let's pray and labor together as a church so that we can exhibit great love to one another and to the world around us. Pray that everyone who walks through these doors, whether they're a visitor or a church member or, or a child or, or a person who's just coming to get food on a Saturday, pray that they would see, pray that they would experience our love for one another. 
So that's our first point, the, the necessity of love. Uh, let's see our, our second point, and that is I, I want to know what love is. And here Paul gives us a, a beautiful description in verses 4 to 7 of, of love's character, of what love is really like. Listen there, starting in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We celebrate love in our culture. This is one place where it appears that our Christian beliefs overlap with the things that the world values most. When when we talk about holiness, self-denial, or sin, or God's anger against sin, well, we expect the world around us is going to disagree. Uh, People object to those kinds of things. But when it comes to love, everybody's on board. But there is a problem. I think that that agreement that we might have between our Christian beliefs and the, the views of the world are really mostly on the surface. I think it's just the appearance of congruence. Because when it boils down to it, it really matters how you define love, doesn't it? And the version of love that's exalted in our world is something that's emotional, something that's very internal. Right? The, the way our world considers love or thinks about love is a, as a sort of deep affection. It's a passionate desire for someone else. It's an emotion that, that binds people together in a, in a commitment and for mutual pleasure. Really, that's how love has become the ultimate trump card in our public discourse. Right? Love is something personal, something internal to me. It's a force within me that cannot be questioned should never be restrained, must never be denied or limited or opposed in any form. Love is love. End of story. And so while we might read Paul's words at weddings, I think most people don't actually believe what he says about love here. Because if you actually look at what Paul says, there is nothing even remotely sentimental. There is nothing sappy about what Paul says Feelings, it turns out, have very little to do with how Paul describes love here. Instead, I think it would be more accurate to say that the the Bible's definition of love, as it's portrayed here in 1 Corinthians 13, is a posture. Uh, Love is an attitude. It is a concern and a, a commitment to the welfare of another. We might even say that Love is and love does more than love feels. Love is a behavior more than an emotion. So feelings might undergird some of the things that love does, but but they're not at its essence. Here in verses 4 to 7, Paul personifies love. He tells us what love does and what love doesn't do. You understand he's, he's talking about what people do and don't do, but it's, it's, he, he personifies love here, and treating it like it's a person. And what we see is that these characteristics of love, these behaviors of love, touch very specifically on what was going on in the life of the Corinthian church. And so let's walk through. There's roughly 15 or so characteristics that Paul gives us here. And we'll naturally have to go fairly quickly. 
So just sort of let these wash over. If you want to think about them more, two books I'd recommend to you. One is Jonathan Edwards' Charity and Its Fruits. We read that in the men's group uh, a year or so ago, and it was very helpful. Another is Philip Ryken's book. I think it's Loving the Way Jesus Loved. It's a title like that. If you find a book by Phil Ryken that sounds like that, it's the right book. He just walks through each one of these uh, particular things that Paul says here in this chapter and demonstrates how Jesus himself manifested these virtues uh, and how we can think more about it. But we'll go quickly uh, through this. But, but, but remember here, Paul's first sort of circle of application is not necessarily the family, not marriage, uh, but particularly the church. So as we go over these, think about what it would look like for you to exhibit these qualities, uh, these behaviors, uh, particularly in the life of our congregation. So there in verse 4, Paul says, love is patient. The word that he uses here often has the sense of being slow to become angry, right? A loving person gives time and space for someone else to grow and change, right? A loving person is not on a hair trigger. She's not easily offended. He's not easily provoked into sharp words or biting comments. The word that Paul uses here shows up in the Old Testament in Proverbs 19, verse 11. We read there, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is a man's glory to overlook an offense, right? Paul says here, love is patient. Love is slow to become angry. Next up there in verse 4, we see that love is kind. This is really the flip side of patience, right? If patience is kind of restraining a negative emotion in response to an offense, kindness is behaving positively towards someone in that same situation. Kindness is doing good to someone else. Kindness is a gentle posture. Right? There, there are no sharp edges in love. Love never leaves you battered and bruised and bleeding after you come into contact with it. Continuing on in verse 4 there, Paul says that love doesn't envy and love doesn't boast. He also says there that it's not arrogant. Right? You see how those ideas are sort of the opposite side of the, the same thought, right? And love does not envy. An envious person sees what someone else has and wants it for themselves. The boastful person, the, the arrogant person, sees what he has and, and tries to make others want it. Right? You see how this applies immediately to the Corinthian situation. The people without the spectacular gifts were jealous of those who could prophesy and speak in tongues. The people who had those gifts were, were bragging about them and making others feel like they were less than. The word that's translated here in verse 4 is arrogant. Uh, it literally means puffed up. And Paul's already used this word five times in, in the book of 1 Corinthians to describe the Corinthian church. They were puffed up people. So this isn't idle speculation. Many of the problems that Paul is addressing in the life of the church that we've seen over the past 12 chapters are rooted in a lack of love, manifesting itself in self-regard and, and arrogance. You see, lovelessness produces one of two results in our souls. For some, lovelessness manifests itself as an insecure temperament. A lack of love for other people gives you an inferiority complex. Because what you want most is not the welfare and prosperity of your brother or sister, but what you want most is your own. And so when you don't have it, when you don't get it, 
When you, when you don't have the best job, when you're not the best looking person, when you're not the most respected, most gifted, most appreciated person you know, it makes you deeply jealous. Because you don't love other people, you just want what they have for yourself. For others, lovelessness manifests itself in an inflated ego. Right? If someone thinks deep down that they're responsible for all the good things in their life, they're going to expect other people to serve them and defer to them and, and want to be like them. Whether you look down on other people or, or, or whether you desperately are envious of other people, it's really the same thing. It's a sort of inward curved pride that wants to be great, that wants to be seen as important. In my experience, the, the, the two things that lead to a lack of love most in people's lives are sort of like critical self-hatred, right? Because if you, if you don't love yourself, if you don't accept yourself, if you're not gracious to yourself, if you don't believe that God loves you, it's really hard to love other people, right? If you're critical of yourself all the time, you're probably also going to treat other people that same way. And on the other side, a sort of inflated sense of self. If you think you're great, then it's going to be really hard to think that anyone else is great. It's going to be really hard to, to care about other people and not see them simply as a means to your own glory. There in verse 5, Paul tells us love is not rude. The word Paul uses here is the same word he used back in chapter 7, verse 36, to describe someone who's behaving inappropriately uh, towards their fiancé, sort of stringing them along. The idea here is that love treats other people with respect. It treats them in a way that honors the fact that they're made in the image of God. Love is never dismissive or, or offensive. You see this rudeness that Paul talks about here. It's connected to pride and boastfulness and arrogance. Right? When you're being rude to someone, you're acting as if you're more important than they are. We might say that love treats the CEO of your company the same way it treats the waiter at the restaurant. Right? Both are worthy of courtesy and respect. Paul says in verse 5 that, Love doesn't insist on its own way. Love isn't selfish. So it's not to say that loving people don't have opinions or perspectives, but rather that loving people don't need to be deferred to in order to be all right. Loving people are okay not getting their way. As Paul says there at the end of the verse, it's, love isn't irritable. It's not resentful. All right, that's what we're tempted to, to be when, when things don't go the way we want them to go. Right, when we have a disagreement, when there's a choice to be made, and we have one opinion and other people have another, and, and, and their opinion wins out, right, we're tempted to be irritable and to be resentful. But here Paul says that love is able to not get what it wants without being grumpy or touchy. Right, the loving person doesn't keep score and resentfully store up all the ways that they've been denied what they want. Right, that, that phrase, is not resentful. Sometimes it's translated, keeps no record of wrongs. Right? Love does not hold a grudge. Right? Even if it's truly harmed, love keeps no mental file for future reference. Love truly forgives. There in verse 6, we see that furthermore, love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. And let's be honest, it's one of the worst things about us. But there is something perverse in us that delights in evil, that, that takes a secret thrill in the failure of others. Something in us 
kind of likes to see people put in their place. Right? When you see other people fail, just for a brief moment, it kind of makes you feel more successful. Right? When you see other people sin, it allows you just for a moment to feel a bit of self-righteousness. But Paul says love doesn't pretend to be holy, all the while delighting inwardly at things that grieve God. Love isn't happy when bad things happen to a brother or sister. Rather, there at the end of verse 6, Paul says just the opposite is true. Love rejoices with the truth. Love searches out things that are praiseworthy, things that are worthy of getting excited about. Love doesn't go around snooping for evil, but tries to catch people doing the right thing. Love is a posture of delight at all the ways God was worked in the lives of others. Love tends to see evidences of grace in someone's life before it sees things that need to be fixed. I would just say it's significant here that that Paul uses the word rejoice. Because I think probably for some of us, the way we're most likely to sort of not meet the standard of this passage, the way we're most likely to sort of sin against this passage, is maybe not by an overt sort of, sort of opposition to it. Maybe you, you're like, well, I don't think I'm rude to people. Like, I don't really get angry at people. Maybe the way that, that some of us are tempted to sort of not obey the demands of this passage is simply indifference. Right? I just don't really think about my brothers and sisters in the church. I, I, it just kind of doesn't, doesn't register. I'm busy, got a lot going on at work, my family's sort of pressing in, right? So I, I honestly just kind of benign neglect. But here Paul says that if, if you're going to love, it involves a kind of intimate connection so that you're actually rejoicing, right? Rejoicing at the truth when it's manifested in the lives of others. Indifference to one another is not love. Indifference to one another is not an option. There in verse 7, we see a rapid-fire series of statements. Paul says, love bears all things. The sense of the word that Paul uses there is that love puts up with annoyances. Love is happily inconvenienced. Paul says there in verse 7, love believes all things. So it's not to say that love is gullible, but rather it's not cynical. Love is not defensive. Love doesn't assume the worst about others. Paul says love hopes all things. Right? Even in the face of disappointment, love doesn't stop hoping for better. Love endures all things. Nothing can stop love from loving. Right? Love is not dependent on the worthiness of its object. And so it can endure anything. So how'd you do? Patient, kind, not envying or boasting, not arrogant or rude, not insisting on its own way, not irritable or resentful, not rejoicing in wrongdoing, but actually rejoicing in the truth. Bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. Does that sound like you? Would the people in your life say that you make them feel love this way? Would your brothers and sisters in the church say that they've experienced that kind of love from you? There's a balance here because in one sense, you, I don't think you can read this if you're a Christian and not be convicted. Right? Who, who feels like they meet this standard? But also I hope and I expect that 
that if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is so active in your life that you would be able to truly say, well, yes, in, in some ways, in some provisional ways, by God's grace alone, certainly not perfectly, but yes, I do actually see some of these things manifest in my life. So the question for us is, how can we, how can we grow? How, how can we have hope to change? I assume everyone in this room would like to be a more loving person. I assume everyone would like to be characterized by these things. What does it look like for us to grow then and to be more like this vision of love? Well, let me suggest two things. Paul doesn't really tell us here, but let me suggest two things that I think kind of in context we can pull out and that may help us. Two things that you can do to grow in this kind of love. And the first is remind yourself of what we saw back in chapter 12. I think Paul assumes that we didn't take like a two-week break between reading chapter 12 and chapter 13. If you remember there, the image that Paul uses for the church is that of a body, right? The church is a body. We are all individually members of it. The idea there that we saw is that there is a very real interconnectedness and interdependence among the members of a church. And I think that as you grow in your ability to see your brothers and sisters in that light, not as a threat, not as competition, but as someone who has a shared interest in Christ, someone who has been spiritually connected to you, someone whose spiritual health is actually good for you, and whose spiritual weakness is actually bad for you, I think the more we learn to see one another that way, the easier it will be for us to love one another and to treat one another well and to bear with one another patiently. Remember what Paul said back in chapter 12 in verses 25 and 26. He says that God has so designed the church that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Remember, love rejoices, rejoices in the truth. If we remember that we're connected to one another, it will help us to love. The second thing I think you can do in order to grow in your, uh, your love is to meditate more fully on the love of God. I don't know about you, I could have kept reading that psalm like all day. I was like, just keep saying things, and we'll say, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, right? Like, it's better than the sermon, right? Let's just keep saying things that God did, and then we'll just tell each other how much he loves us, right? The, the fact that, that God is calling us here to love one another, right, is a, a demonstration of something about God's character. It's significant that when God wanted to pull together a group of people that represent him, right, he didn't create Fight Club, Right? <laughs> He pulled a group of people together and he said, I've got one thing that's most important. Love. Love one another. Right? Because God himself, as we read in 1 John 4, is love. Right? The the love that God is calling us to here, the love that the Holy Spirit puts in our heart, friends, it is the love that Jesus has for us. Right? Think about it for a second. What makes it so hard to love other people? Well, on some level, it's because most people are unworthy of our love, right? It's not that hard, if you're a decent human being, to love people who are good to you, right? If, if someone walks around all day 
handing out money, passing out compliments, solving everyone's problems. Right? Everyone would love that person. Right? No, the problem comes when people frustrate us, when people take from us, when they do something thoughtless or selfish, when they're, when they're boastful or arrogant, when they wrong us in some way. That's when it's hard to love. But friends, here's the thing. God's love is for the unlovely. The very essence of God's love for humanity is that he loves us when we don't deserve it. Friends, God's love doesn't need something lovely in us to tether itself to. His love does not require some goodness in us to ignite it and sustain it. Friends, God is so perfect that he can love people who are unworthy of his love. Remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, God's love for us was so great that while we were still in rebellion against him, while there was nothing in us to commend us to his love, when we were in that state, God sent his son to die for us, to bear our sins, to to be a sacrifice in our place, to rise from the dead so that we could be forgiven of our sins, cleansed, welcomed into his family. We deserved none of that. We deserved, if we're going to talk about what we deserve, we deserved hell. We deserve God's judgment and his anger against our sins. But still, even then, when that was what we deserved, God loved us with an incredible, sacrificial love. And amazingly enough, it's that same kind of love that we're called to show to one another. Right? When you've experienced this most incredible love, The testimony of Scripture is clear, and the testimony of Christian experience is clear. When you've experienced this kind of love, it transforms you. It it can't not transform you. It it makes you into a channel. It, It never creates a reservoir within you, right? It creates streams of love flowing out from you. You become a vehicle of spreading God's love. Again, 1 John 4 that we read earlier said it very plainly. We love because he first loved us. Jesus puts it pointedly in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We tend to just remember that last verse. Oh, perfect. How am I supposed to be perfect? Right? And we think about all the things we do wrong all day. In context there, what Jesus is saying is that God's perfection is demonstrated. Your heavenly Father's perfection is most clearly seen in the fact that he is so perfect that he doesn't need anything in you to love you. 
And so when Jesus calls us to, to bear that image of our father, to be sons and daughters who look like their father, right? he calls us to be perfect. He's calling us to the same kind of love. You go love unlovely people. Go love your enemies. Go, go love people who wrong you. Go love your brothers and sisters in the church who offend you, who don't hold the same opinions that you hold, right? who are boastful and proud and selfish and arrogant. The perfection of God is seen in his ability to love his enemies. So that means when your brother or sister offends you, or sins against you, or disappoints you, or lets you down, or otherwise proves themselves unworthy of your love in any one of a million ways, you have your marching orders. Simply remind yourself, that person does not deserve God's love. But still, Christ loved them and died for them. Remind yourself that you have never deserved God's love. But still, he loved you. And he sent Christ to die for you. And then ask God, by the power of his Holy Spirit dwelling in you, to help you to love your brother or sister in the same way that he does. The Puritan Thomas Watson put it well. He says, Christian, if you can't love your brother despite his faults, how do you expect God to love you? Church, can you see how beautiful this is? Can you see, again, how kind it is of God to call us into this kind of community, to, to give us this as our marching orders, to love one another? I mean, how wonderful to be in a family where we can be confident that others love us like this, where, where I don't have to worry that, that my sin and that my failure and that, that me letting you down is going to cause you to stop loving me, where I don't have to worry about whether I've done enough to earn your love and approval. I don't have to worry about disappointing you to the point where you're going to cut me off because I know that God's love is in you. And that you're loving me because he loved you. And so I know that when I experience your love, I'm experiencing God's love for me. Now, brothers and sisters, in the end, we have to conclude that any lack of love in us represents a failure to really, truly appreciate the love of God shown to us in Christ. The love that Paul describes here in chapter 13 is God's love. And that's the, the love that we're called to show to one another. Well, as we conclude this morning, let's look briefly at our third point, and that is, I will always love you. There in verses 8 to 13, it says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So the last thing Paul tells us, there in, about in verse 7 is that it endures. Now at the beginning of verse 8, he tells us that it never ends. It, it perseveres. So in verses 1 to 3, he compares love to the spiritual gifts. Right? He says you have to have love. 
Verses 4 to 7, he breaks out a sort of description of what love is like. And now Paul's sort of going back to his original thought, sort of thinking about love and the spiritual gifts together. Comparing the spiritual gifts that the Corinthians care so much about with the thing that's most important to Paul, and that is love. See, the chief difference between love and the gifts of the Spirit, Paul says, is that the gifts will end. He says in verse 8 that, that knowledge and prophecy will pass away. The word he uses there literally means will be destroyed. He, he also says the gift of tongues, it's going to cease. So Paul sees a day coming when tongues and prophecy and knowledge, these, these spectacular gifts being manifested by the Spirit in the church, they're going to come to an end. They're not eternal. Knowledge itself will not be destroyed, right? In, in verse 12, Paul says there's going to be a day when we'll know completely. So it's, it's not that knowledge will no longer exist, but rather the gift of special knowledge, the Spirit gifting people with a special knowledge. That gift will pass away. Right? The content of prophecy will always be true, but the gift of prophecy will no longer be necessary at some point in the future. Uh, these things, knowledge, prophecy, tongues, they're, they're all, they all belong to what Paul calls the partial there in verse 10. They're going to pass away at some point in the future that Paul calls the perfect in, in verse 10. So there's some point in the future where the perfect will come, Paul says, verse 10. And at that point, the partial will pass away. Gifts of knowledge, tongues, things like that. And so we should ask then, what is Paul talking about? What does it mean for the perfect to come? It's not at all sort of obvious immediately, but there are kind of three basic theories. And this is kind of a flashpoint for people arguing about the role of the spiritual gifts in the life of the church so some people want to say that, no, things like tongues and prophecy and special knowledge and miracles and healing, it, it still continues on today. Others want to say, no, those gifts ceased in the past. And it all kind of boils down to how you read these verses here. Oh, everyone agrees these things will pass away at some point. The question is, have we already reached that point or is that point somewhere off in the future? So there's kind of three basic theories about what Paul means when he's, when he's talking about the perfect coming there in verse 10 this point where these spiritual gifts are no longer needed. Some people, first sort of theory, is that some people say that Paul's talking about the maturity of the church or even the maturity of certain individual believers. The word that Paul uses there in verse 10, translated as perfect, it can also mean complete or, or mature. In fact, that's probably the most common meaning for that word in Scripture. So some people think that the, the perfect that Paul's talking about here in verse 10 has already come. Some point in the past when the early church reached a, a certain sort of point of maturity where it no longer needed these spectacular gifts. Others believe, this would be the second idea, that this refers to the, the completion of the New Testament canon. Basically the completion of our Bible. Right? They believe that the perfection that's referred to here is God finishing his revelation to his people in Scripture. Right? So Paul's writing these things in like the 50s A.D., you got another 40 years, basically, give or take, of the Bible being written. And, and at that point, when the Bible's finished and the church has sort of recognized these as the scriptures, that's when we would say the perfect has come. Things have come to completion or maturity. And so we no longer need the gifts of the Spirit in terms of tongues and prophecy and knowledge because, because we have the Bible. Right? This theory would say those things were only important because those people didn't have a New Testament to read. 
Uh, Still others, the third option, would say that the coming of perfection that Paul talks about here in verse 10 is attached to the return of Christ and the institution of new heavens and a new earth. And it's actually pretty important that we get this right, right? Because if we locate the coming of the perfect here in verse 10 at some point in in the second century, well, then we would have to conclude that gifts like prophecy and tongues and knowledge have have most definitely ceased. But if not, if the the perfect that Paul's talking about here in verse 10 is actually the return of Christ, that means we need to think carefully about what these gifts look like in our context as we await the return of Christ. So so which is the best option out of those three? When it talks about the perfect coming, what, what should we conclude? Well, let's look. Paul actually gives us some details what it's going to look like when the perfect comes. Uh, first, there in verse 10, he says that when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Right? Our existence is characterized by in-partness. There in verse 9 and verse 12, we're told that we now know in part, and we prophesy in part. Uh, Paul says that we, we see in a mirror dimly. Right there in verse 12. Right? When we look at divine truth, we can sometimes only see sort of fuzzy shadows. Uh, In this life, we are like children. Paul uses that word picture there in verse 11. Our thinking, our acting is immature and imperfect. Right? If you've ever tried to teach something to a a small child who's just not developmentally sort of capable of handling it, you you know how it goes. Right? Take a, take a, 18-month-old and try to teach it sort of Latin verb conjugation, right? There's just not the equipment there to really process it. There's nothing wrong with the child. The child's not stupid. It just doesn't have the, the bandwidth to, to process that information. In the same way, we are, we are childish. There are things about eternity, things about God that we simply don't have the circuitry to handle. All of this sort of describes the partialness there in verse 10 that will pass away. Instead, Paul says when the perfect comes, things are going to be very different, drastically different, in fact, than our experience of this world. In verse 11, we we will be like grown-ups. We will be mature, no longer children. Uh, Paul says in verse 12 that we'll be able to know completely. We will know fully when the perfect comes. We will know maturely. We'll even there in verse 12 see God face to face. And so the question then is, when does that happen? When is the Christian mature? When, or I'm sorry, is it, is it when the Christian is mature? Is it when the canon of Scripture is complete? Or, or is it that third option, at the return of Christ, when all things are made new? To me, it seems obvious that it has to be the third option. It has to be the return of Christ. The first option, the maturity of the individual believer, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense he doesn't really do justice to what Paul's describing here when he talks about the coming of the perfect. The second option, the completion of the canon, is problematic. There's nothing in the text that would make us think that that's what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about Scripture. He hasn't been talking about Scripture. You can't imagine any way the Corinthians would have read Paul saying that here and been like, oh yeah, he's talking about some point off in the future when some people write more letters and they put together in a book, Right? It just doesn't do justice to the language here, right? We, we have the Bible. We love the Bible. We, we respect the Bible. But, but having the Bible doesn't give anyone the sense that our knowledge is complete, right? Which is what Paul says happens when the perfect comes. 
right? The, the canon of scripture is complete. We can know truly, but we certainly don't know fully. That expression that Paul uses face, face to face, to see God face to face, it's a phrase that's used in the Old Testament when people, right, come into the presence of God, right? Having a Bible doesn't quite sort of rise to the level of seeing God face to face, but the Bible does actually tell us when we will see God face to face. Revelation 22 tells us that at the end of time, when God makes all things new, there in Revelation 22, starting in verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, just as Paul says we will, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I think the only conclusion we can come to is that Paul believes that the gifts of prophecy and tongues and knowledge will pass away when Jesus returns. And so with that said, we need to think more next week about what role, if any, those gifts ought to play in in our church, in our day. But for our purposes today, though that's oftentimes where the arguments are about this passage, I don't think that's actually what Paul means to sort of emphasize. Right? He's not actually talking to a church that's going to experience the cessation of these gifts. So that's not really what he's worried about with them. His point is not when the gifts will pass away, but rather that they will most certainly pass away someday. There in verse 13, he tells us that faith and hope and love are the things that will remain on into eternity. Right? These three virtues, they're often spoken of together. They're held together in a sort of triad in many places in the New Testament. It's kind of a summary of what motivates and energizes the Christian life. Right? All of the spiritual gifts that Paul talks about in chapter 12 and that he's going to talk about more in chapter 14, they are given to us as a, as, an end, as a means to the end of hope and faith and love. Those things are what the gifts are for. Those things, hope, faith, and love, are what remain into perfection. But still, Paul tells us there in verse 13 that the greatest of these is love. It doesn't exactly explain why, but I think there's a hint in the passage. In verse 2, Paul mentions faith, and he can imagine it, at least hypothetically, functioning without love. In verse 7, hope is is a sort of subset of love. It's something that love does. I think there's a way in which love is spoken of in Scripture as the sort of all embracing virtue, right? It is it is the light of which everything else is sort of a mere ray. Right? Love is foundational to what we will be in eternity when we are with God, who is perfect love. And so, brothers and sisters, when we love each other, as Paul describes here, when we manifest towards one another this God-given divine love, when we are patient and kind and forgiving, when we bear all things and hope all things, it's like heaven is breaking in here on earth. It's meant to be a foretaste of glory. Not for nothing did Jonathan Edwards conclude his series of sermons on this chapter by declaring that heaven is a world of love. The love that we have in the church is meant to be a little foretaste of what it's going to be like to see God face to face and experience his perfect love. So brothers and sisters, as we come to the Lord's table today, We have this amazing opportunity to manifest together 
something of what it will be like to experience the love of God in all eternity. Right here in the elements, in the bread and in the wine, we have portrayed for us God's love. God's love made visible. Here before us, brothers and sisters, is love. That the Lord Jesus would lay down his life for his friends. Here is love. Love that would transform us into its own image. Slowly, perhaps, but truly. So that we might love one another in some small way as we've been loved. And so let's pray. Then let's let's celebrate God's love and let's let it change us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Father, we delight in your great love for us. That while we were still sinners, you sent your beloved Son to die for us and to rise for us so that we might be your sons and daughters. Lord Jesus, we read of love in 1 Corinthians 13 and we see how far short we fall of the standard but we also see how perfectly you've loved us. We see that you are patient, that you are kind, that you're never envious or boastful, never arrogant or rude, that when you walked among us, you did not insist on your own way. You were never irritable or resentful. You never rejoiced at wrongdoing, but rejoiced with the truth. Lord Jesus, you bore all things. You believed all things, hoped all things, endured all things, and so your love for us never ends. Holy Spirit, would you give us a taste of that love that we've experienced, even now as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper? Would you, Holy Spirit, transform us as your people into a people who love one another with your love? And we ask all these things in our Savior's name. Amen.